This uh, is part of the Pierce Directors Book Forum series, where, which is a, basically a forum where faculty who work in interna international and regional studies uh, have a chance to present their published work, their recently published work, to uh, the university community uh, and to the community at large. Uh, we've had a number of them so far this semester. I think we have one more to go. Uh, that's Lisa Davis's uh, uh, talk on her recent book on uh, Greece. Uh, but today's uh, presentation is by uh, Andreas uh, Wimmer. Uh, Andreas is the uh, Hughes Rogers Professor of Sociology uh, here at Princeton, also a faculty associate in the Department of Politics. Uh, until recently, he was a professor at, at UCLA. Uh, we have been very lucky to get him to come here to Princeton. Uh, he's the author of many articles, uh, many of which have won prizes, and I won't go through uh, all of them. Uh, but uh, I will mention some of the books that he's published. Again, he's published many, many books uh, in German and in English, but I'll mention only the ones in English because those are probably the ones that are accessible to most of you. Uh, so uh, he's the author of Nationalist Exclusion and Ethnic Conflicts, Shadows of Modernity, which was published in 2002, uh, Facing Ethnic Conflicts uh, Towards a New Realism, published in 2004, uh, Understanding Change, Models, Methodologies, and Metaphors, uh, 2006. Uh, Ethnic Boundary Making, Institutions, Power, uh, and Networks, which is about to be published by Oxford University Press. And then uh, there's also the book that we're going to be talking about today, uh, Waves of War, Nationalism, State Formation, and Ethnic Exclusion in the Modern World, which was published by King University Press uh, this past year. So Waves of War uh, basically traces uh, the emergence of the modern nation-state out of empires uh, and the waves of wars that were associated with that. And I'm not going to give it any more of an introduction than that because you'll hear more from it from Andreas. So let's welcome Andreas Mendel. Thank you very much, Mark. Thank you very much, Mark, uh, for giving me the opportunity to talk um, about this book today. And thanks, um, everybody, for coming. Um, I hope that this event... Uh, will help me to get over the postpartum depression that I'm currently uh, finding myself in, having just published uh, two books. And so I kind of don't uh, quite know what to do now with my life. And maybe talking, at least. I don't think I can speak louder. Maybe I can make this uh, the volume. I can put the volume up here. Let's see. In any case, is that better? Okay. Um, so I hope that talking uh, helps to overcome the, the uh, post-publication um, depression. So this is a book that, that took me about 10 years to write, and it's a, a book that is um, trying to address a broad interdisciplinary literature and audience in sociology, in political sociology, comparative historical sociology, and in political science um, as well. And the book was, uh, is based on a series of, of articles that were uh, all written to overcome what I perceived as being one of the major deficits in a number of literatures, which is that the, the power, the political power of nationalism in shaping the contemporary world and in shaping the dynamics of war and peace um, as I saw it, at least, as I read the literature, wasn't really as prominently discussed um, in the last 10 years as I think it should be. 
And so the tendency over the last two years in many different literatures was to emphasize hardcore political economy factors in explaining war and peace and such things as state formation and to overlook the power of ideologies of principles of political legitimacy such as nationalism. And so the book tries to actually bring this um, into uh, the discussion. So here's the main kind of take-home um, arguments. One is that um, nationalism, and I define it as the, the principle that states should be ruled in the name of a nationally defined people rather than ruled in the name of God, as in theocracies, or ruled by a dynastic uh, family, as in, in kingdoms. <coughs> so this uh, principle, I argue, is a major force that has shaped world and domestic politics over the last 200 years, and including many of the wars both between states and within states that happened since uh, the dawn of the modern area. And yet the exact role that nationalism plays in these uh, processes, in the transformation of the political world over the past 200 years, remains poorly understood um, there's a lot of more uh, conjectural, philosophical um, arguments about the role of nationalism. There's a lot of grand theorizing about it. There's a lot of historical writing about it. But there's, um, I perceive, a lack of precise analysis of its role. And uh, on the other hand, it's very often ignored, very often in international relations scholarship, for example, the power of nationalism reshaping the constituent units of the world system, of the international system, is very often not um, emphasized at all. So the book introduces a power and legitimacy argument to show how exactly nationalism has reshaped the world in this war-prone process of institutional transformation. So let me start by introducing a little bit of theory um, that kind of is behind the approach that I'm um, advocating here. I call it the primitive theory because it's, uh, you know, a lot of things remain not really fully fleshed out, remain uh, just uh, um, kind of an outline rather than a fully formulated argument. So there's two main elements here. One is structures of exchange relationships between state elites, those who control um, a government, and non-elites. And um, I would like to invite you to imagine these as exchange relationships that have a network, uh, a network structures, such as in the little graph that I have here. And this is what I call a power configuration, the nature of who exactly exchanges loyalty against public goods and so on and so on in um, a polity. And then on the other hand, there are what I call templates of legitimate political order that's ideas about who should actually exchange, exchange what with whom. So what's the ideal nature and structure of exchange relationship within a polity? And these obviously interact with each other. They influence each other in complex ways um, that I will not actually try to disentangle at all. So these two elements of a political order, templates of legitimacy and the structure of power relations on the other hand, they conjointly produce um, political identities, large-scale political identities, such as ethnic groups 
or nations. That's the ones that I'm going to be focusing upon here. Um, and the argument that I'm going to make, you will see that in a moment, is that such large-scale political identities emerge from and map onto the exchange relationships that people have um, established with each other. And then I argue that both exchange relationships, power relations, and principles of legitimacy together produce large-scale um, institutional transformations such as the shift from nation-state to empire um, and that such uh, shifts can either be produced endogenously through a change in the power relationships which then um, empower certain visions of a legitimate political order over others, make, uh, make it possible for certain actors to realize their visions of a legitimate political order and suppresses or replaces other um, uh, templates of legitimacy. They can also be brought about by um, exogenous shifts, by um, social movements adopting certain visions of what the legitimate political order should look like from the outside and uh, starting to apply this vision or to, to uh, ask for the realization of this vision in their own society. And then finally, the types and frequencies of war uh, that you find in a polity are also uh, the combined result of principles of legitimacy and power relations. Um, when power relations do not conform, contradict established visions of legitimate order, I argue that is a, a conflict-prone situation. And on the other hand, uh, there might be conflict between actors that pursue different legitimate visions of the political order. That's the second source of war and conflict according to this admittedly uh, primitive theory of power, legitimacy, and identity. So that's the general framework that I'm using to analyze um, concrete historical processes. And this theory contradicts, as those of you who are familiar with these literatures will uh, uh, readily uh, recognize, with both modernization approaches and more recent globalization approaches, to the question of the formation of nation-states, who disregard the role of power configurations in the global spread of the nation-state, don't look at the precise mechanics of uh, relations between situated actors who are struggling with each other over um, which principle of legitimacy should uh, prevail. It also contrasts with standard, standard international relations, uh, relations approaches in political science who do not consider the change in principle of legitimacy, the change in the nature of the constituent units, uh, of the units that constitute the um, international system as a major source of war um, in the modern world. And um, it also contrasts the argument that I'm going to make um, with dominant political economy approaches to civil war um, in comparative politics mostly that disregard questions of legitimacy and of political inequality as grievances um, as a cause for uh, civil war and instead focus in the most often cited and still kind of uh, dominant approaches on state weaknesses as in the insurgency mar uh, model that Fearon and Leighton have proposed or they uh, focus on economic incentives to wage war, civil wars, such as lootable resources, oil, diamonds, um, and so on. 
So this is the general uh, gist um, of, my, um, of the approach here. And the second characteristics of the book is that it's based on global data sets that I have assembled with dozens of brilliant and uh, hardworking uh, grad students, mostly at UCLA, uh, over the past um, 10 years. And most of these data sets cover the entire world uh, from 1816 to 2001. And this is in contrast to the literature on nation building or nation state formation, which is usually based on either global historical narratives, such as uh, Benedict Anderson's book, or an, the analysis of small number of cases in the comparative historical tradition, usually five, maybe six or seven uh, cases. And also contrast with the Civil War literature, which focuses on post-1945 period almost um, exclusively. And it also uh, provides the opportunity to have global data sets that run over the very, very long around 200 years to uh, do something else than recent globalization approaches who pay a lot of emphasis on the novelty of the, the uniqueness of the post-1970 or whatever globalization is thought to be uh, taking off period and to instead show that there are recurring patterns in certain uh, political processes that recur over the last 200 years, such that more recent developments, as the wave of ethnic civil wars that swept over the world post-189, um, can appear not as due to unique processes such as globalization, but as being part of a pattern of historical processes that, re that recurs um, again and again over the last um, uh, two or uh, 20 uh, decades. A quantitative analysis of such global data also guards against Western centrism. It helps to pay uh, equal attention to small, insignificant places such as uh, Gambia or Bhutan. Uh, and coming myself from a small and politically insignificant uh, country originally, such as Switzerland, I find it uh, there's a kind of an ethical dimension of doing working with global data sets where all cases are weighed uh, equally. And you can still, of course, then trace such things as imitation or unequal power in the global system. It doesn't force you to uh, treat literally all of these countries um, as being of equal importance. Okay, so let me start with... Uh, some what um, um, professional presenters uh, call teaser graphs, um, such as this one, that shows you um, this process that I'm going to analyze in much more detail. Subsequently, the process of the global spread of nation of, na of nationalism as uh, principles of legitimizing statehood. So you can see here from 1816 to 2000, uh, how much of the global surface of the world has been uh, covered, has been ruled by different types of polities, by empires, uh, by uh, these white area, other areas, which is dynastic kingdoms, city-states, uh, tribal confederacies, and things like that. And finally, the nation-states here. And you can see that the last 200 years can be described as a dramatic expansion of the area of the world covered by nation-state at the cost, at the first half of this process, primarily of dynastic kingdoms, tribal confederacies, and so on, and then later from the, uh, in the 20th century at the cost of um, empires. Now, second graph shows the, the war 
the conflictual aspect of this process. So these are uh, different types of wars that have been fought over the last 200 years. Uh, this is in, always in percentage, so the proportion of different kinds of wars, uh, of all wars that are being fought in uh, five-year periods. And you can see here on the very top, these are um, uh, wars of conquest. Um, then the white ones are interstate, classical interstate wars, balance of power wars. And then you have this gray area, which is all other civil wars. And here are ethno-nationalist civil wars that are linked to nationalist principles of claims, to nationalist principles of legitimacy. And if you disregard the Second World War here, which of course makes a huge dent in this whole, um, in this whole uh, graph, which, um, then you would have a relatively smooth, um, not smooth, but you would have a continuous rise of the proportion of wars in the world that are fought on um, the basis of claims to legitimacy that are tied to nationalism as an ideology. Um, so I'm going to analyze these processes of the formation of states and the wars that are um, going together with it in four steps. The first is the rise of a nation-state model. It's kind of a, a very logical, basically the steps follow the historical process itself. Then the global adoption of the nation-state model subsequently, as I showed you in this graph here. And then the wars between and within states that result from this global diffusion process. And in the last step, I'm going to look more precisely at one subset of wars uh, in a sub-period. Um, I'm going to look at those after um, the 1945 period. I'm going to look at civil wars exclusively. So let me start with the first step, the birth of the nation, the rise of the idea of um, the nation as a community of solidarity and shared political destiny. And so this needs to be obviously explained endogenously because there's no diffusion uh, possible for the first um, instances of a new political forum that emerges. And I do this with a formal model, uh, which, and I'm not going to go into any of the mechanics of it, I'm just going to say that the model is actually calibrated empirically with data on resource distributions of which actors control what and exchange what with whom uh, between various elite factions and non-elite uh, groups in, for France and the Ottoman Empire roughly from the 13th century to the end of the 19th uh, century. So it's not uh, a free-floating uh, rational choice model that uh, is based on, as let's assume, uh, kind of assumptions, but it's, it, it has a, it has a, a rather solid um, empirical foundation. So the models does, uh, it models exchange relationships between political elites and masses. It's kind of a neo-Blauian, as it were, uh, model. And it assumes that elites offer participation, political participation or influence, and public goods. And the masses offer taxation or resistance, or more or less resistance to being taxed, and military support and loyalty. So that's the exchange um, relationships that political elites and masses establish uh, with each other. These exchange relationships are exclusive. So if uh, one person uh, exchanges with another person, this other person cannot exchange um, simultaneously with another person. And actors therefore care um, with whom they 
enter into an exchange relationship and whom is going to be excluded from uh, those emerging relationships. So it's a kind of a coalition building model, as it were, uh, the building of exchange um, coalitions. And the model assumes that political identities such as nations or ethnic groups or classes or regions and so on emerge from stable such exchange relationships between um, actors. Um, so it's two formal models stacked onto each other. One is a Coleman exchange model for those of you who are familiar with these kind of uh, modeling traditions. I don't know. And then uh, there's a sequential game um, theoretic model uh, that determines then who actually ends up with whom in uh, an exchange coalition. Let me say something about the results. Um, so more inclusionary, encompassing exchange coalitions that basically don't leave anybody outside of the, um, of the web of resource exchanges, of, uh, of military support and taxes against political decision-making, in influence over political decision-making and public goods, emerge when um, the central state has been able to control, to gain control over a lot of political decision-making power, taxation cap uh, uh, capacities, and public goods uh, provision. So in a, in a highly centralized state where the central elites become attractive exchange partner for almost anybody in the territory, that's a precondition for encompassing, it's kind of uh, intuitive, for encompassing exchange relationships uh, to emerge. And secondly, there are specific organizational channels through which um, uh, that enhance the formation of encompassing relationships. So when civil society, or, or let's say voluntary organizations have emerged in a society, then establishing encompassing trans-ethnic relationships becomes much more easy uh, to accomplish. I cannot go into the details of how this actually uh, works. Um, so in this case, then, ethnic differences, ethnic divides, will not be politicized. There's no exchange relationships will form along ethnic divides, <clears throat> and national identities will be prevalent and become sedimented then um, over time. And so the family analogy that underlies uh, nationalist ideologies will then become taken for granted. It will become internalized. People will actually uh, expect each other to uh, support each other. They uh, expect each other to be able to claim, um, to make uh, claims on each other's uh, solidarity. So this is what the model retrodicts for the specific, historically um, measured, as it were, resource distributions of France from the revolution onwards to the end of the Third uh, Republic. In other words, uh, the model produces exactly what the historical process actually um, uh, produced in the case of France, which is reassuring. Um, less state centralization and less development of voluntary organizations leads, according to the model, to the compartmentalization of the exchange relationships um, of the exchange system along ethnic um, divides. And this is what the model also retrodicts for the Ottoman Empire of the early 19th century, also quite in line with historical developments, you know, the rise of 
Greek, Serbian, and other later Armenian nationalisms in the um, ethnic nationalisms in the um, empire in the, in the Tanzimat period and uh, beyond. So some implications of this kind of analysis, some theoretical implications. First, um, according to this kind of model architectonic and way of going about the, 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 um, the phenomenon of nationalism, nations and ethnic groups are both negotiated accomplishments rather than impositions from above, as in some of the classical literature on um, nationalism, nor is it just mass sentiment arising from below, as in some other famous historical arguments, uh, notably by uh, Benedict Anderson, and so on. So uh, the, the way that this model treats nationalism is different from both of these dominant approaches. It also allows us, this model, to understand why the first nation-states built on these uh, principles became the most powerful countries in the international system. Well, since the nation-state model is based on consent and the mutually beneficial exchange of resources rather than coercion, um, this creates enormous advantages um, uh, that these states can rely upon compared to others they can rely on much more military support than any other uh, political uh, system in, uh, that competes with nation states. And I think the Napoleonic armies in Europe actually showed what universal conscription and the identification of the masses of soldiers with their regime can actually do in terms of um, in military terms. It uh, produces uh, economic uh, advantages with an increased tax base, um, and so on, and so on, and so on. So my analysis here is actually quite similar to that of Margaret Louis, uh, those of you who are familiar with that uh, literature, in arguing that such consent-based and the nation-state model is much more consent-based than any other that existed previously historically, provides enormous uh, power advantages uh, to uh, those states. So this leads me then to the second step, the proliferation, the global diffusion of this new model. And I argue that's a kind of antecedent condition that precisely because these first nation states, France, the US, maybe Great Britain, um, were more powerful and more legitimate, nationalism spreads across the world. Ambitious political elites and counter-elites adopt this model because it's um, uh, such an attractive model, because they would like themselves to be one day presiding over states as powerful, as legitimate, as culturally uh, (coughs) original and attractive as those first nation-states that very soon come to dominate the entire world. The subsequent creation of nation-states, however, may be causally different from the conditions, the the constellations under which these first nation-states came into being. So my argument actually now shifts uh, gears. I no longer look at the endogenous emergence of the nation form as in the first step, but now I look at a diffusion process that is of a different nature, that has different elements different causal relationships that come into play. So it's similar to um, models in evolutionary biology where mutation on the one hand and then 
and then uh, selection and so on are causally different um, and disjoint uh, processes. In order to understand this global diffusion process, I created a new data set, again with uh, data from 1816 to 2005. It takes today's states as units of observations, holding them constant, projecting them backwards all the way down to 1816. And it creates um, data on a, on a variety of um, variables, literacy, railway density as a proxy for economic development, population, wars, government expenditure per capita, and so on and so on. Big nightmare to, uh, to do that. Imagine to find data on literacy in Ghana for 1875. Um, uh, so there's a massive and very problematic, but in the end, I think, still interesting and worth pursuing to pursue a data project that is behind that. And this allows to test various theories, competing theories of nation-state formation. So let me say something about the results. Um, they support a kind of a power configurational argument in line with the theoretical principles that I outlined at the beginning, according to which nation-states are created, a new template of political legitimacy is institutionalized when the balance of power tilts in favor of nationalists. And when is that the case? Well, the relative power of nationalists increases the more time they had to mobilize the population, to scandalize the ethnic hierarchies of empire as illegitimate, as contradicting um, the principles of, of nationalist uh, uh, self-rule or national self-rule and so on. Um, the power of nationalists also increases through regional, not global level, but regional level diffusion processes if a nation state is created just in the neighborhood of a focal territory or if lots of nation states have already been created in the imperial domain to which a territory still uh, belongs. And the worst is true as well. You know, the, uh, the relative power of imperial center decreases with a lower share of global military and economic power of the center. So if you have a battle of Trafalgar and, and someone's fleet is destroyed, then that reduces the possibility of, this, of that particular empire, the Spanish uh, in question, to actually uh, fight nationalists uh, on the other side of the Atlantic. And um, wars on the focal territory or in other parts of the empire also weaken the imperial center and make uh, the creation of a nation state more likely. So those of you who like statistics, so here's a little bit of it um, uh, that expresses these, these power configuration argument with some easy, or relatively easy to understand numbers. So in addition, nation state among neighbors, that's this diffusion effect, increases the chances of a nation state being formed on the focal territory by 73%. An additional war is almost the same, um, while an additional war elsewhere in the empire, think of the wars fought in Malaysia, and it affects you know, the British Empire that it has on colonies in uh, Africa increases the chances by 43%. And 20 additional years since nationalists actually uh, started mobilizing, ac uh, uh, agitating in favor of national independence increases the um, chances of nation-state formation by 28%. An additional 
nation-state within the empire, 15%, and so on and so on. So these are relatively substantial effects, I would say, that we find here. But even more interesting maybe are the non-results uh, that we find when we test other kinds of theories. First, um, it looks like nation-state creation, once we leave these first examples, such as France or the U.S., uh, become quite independent from domestic modernization processes, such as state centralization or what I uh, mentioned before. Um, so it's independent, more specifically, the chances of a nation-state being created are independent of literacy rates against a very famous argument made by Benedict Anderson in a, what is probably the most well-known book on nationalism. It's also independent of industrialization processes. It's not that the more industrialized, the more likely the nation-state uh, to be created, as maybe the second most famous argument in that literature, uh, that of Ernest Gellner, um, has it. I'd be happy to talk about how you measure industrialization in, uh, let's say, Ghana in the 1840s. It's independent of state centralization um, and other, uh, the shift from indirect to direct rule and other uh, famous argument that uh, is uh, prominently discussed in the literature. It's also independent of world polity pressures so it's not that those societies that are more connected with the centers of, um, of um, the world where new templates of legitimacy are, are emerging and are being propagated and then imposed on everybody else. So it looks like the global legitimacy of the nation state is the consequence of its diffusion across the world rather than its cause. So I opt here for a decentralized contagion process as driving the global uh, diffusion of the nation-state rather than uh, a kind of a centralized imposition from the centers, the global hegemons in um, the world, um, in the world polity. And therefore, as a consequence of, especially of this the lack of any support for a modernization perspectives, many nation-states are actually formed without, ma- without much endogenous nation-building. And in many newly founded states, um, you find, therefore, ethnopolitical inequality and exclusion rather than an inclusionary encompassing exchange um, system that would transcend ethnic divides. So in many of these newly formed nation-states, therefore, you, the state is actually captured by ethnic elites that mainly exchange resources with their core ethnics rather than with other segments of the, uh, of the population as well. And very often um, you even have these uh, ethnic elites that capture the state represent not even the majority of the population in, um, of that country. Okay, so this brings me to the third step, which is the relationship between this process of nation-state formation and war. And the argument that I'm making here is, again, relatively complex, I'm afraid, uh, because war can be bo- is, on the one hand, in the first part of the historical process, a cause of the creation of nation-state. And then, um, after that, nation-state, the nation-state model becomes a cause of further war. Um, Let me explain that a little bit. So war, first, as a cause of nation-state creation. Nationalism, once it has spread, for the reason I elaborated, 
delegitimizes established ethnic hierarchies that characterize many empires. And nationalist wars of secession against alien rule, as now these ethnic hierarchies can be portrayed through a nationalist vision of the world, then lead to the creation of nation-states. And then war is also a consequence of nation-states once these are formed, because the nation-state introduces these and, and now establishes new principles of legitimacy, ethnic self-rule, the rule by ethnic likes over ethnic likes as the new template of political legitimacy. And in weak states with weak civil societies, like in the Ottoman Empire, nation-building fails. And as I said just before, ethnopolitical inequality and exclusion result. And such exclusion now violates, however, nationalist principles of self-rule, of the the like-over-like principle, and are therefore perceived as illegitimate as and can be easily scandalized by ethno-political entrepreneurs. And rebellions against such alien rule now within newly formed nation-states in the name of these excluded groups might follow. The new states also interfere in favor of co-nationals that risk across the border, that risk to become citizens of second uh, class in such exclusionary uh, second-class citizenship, sorry, second-class citizens in um, ethnocratically ruled neighboring states. So they, um, and this interference then might escalate into conflicts between newly nationalizing states. Think of the Macedonian syndrome as Weiner has uh, described it in a famous article in, I think, in the late 1950s. We therefore expect an inverted U-shaped relationship between the process of the formation of nation-states and, on the one hand, um, that's here, the time axis, and the probability of war. You should have, at the beginning of this process, when nationalism started to agitate against ethnic hierarchy of empire, you should have wars of secession that culminate in the creation of a new nation-state, and you should then have ethnic civil wars over the uh, over um, or by um, excluded ethnic groups and their elites, and wars between states in this uh, uh, Macedonian constellation until um, after uh, a couple of generations, the war proness or the, uh, the, the this war prone uh, process of nation state formation comes uh, to an end. So we created, in order to test this argument empirically, a new data set again for, uh, based on cow, with a lot of, with, based on existing data sets with a lot of uh, extensions to it, that covers again the entire world and it's on a territorial basis. So we hold uh, territorial units of observation constant throughout the entire period so that you can actually observe this process on constant um, units of observation. And um, this is the result. That's just descriptive statistics, but if you, if you do it with, in a multivariate uh, environment, the, the, the pattern that emerges here actually is very similar. So here we have the decades before nation-state creation. The blue line is the year zero when a, new, an, uh, a territory becomes ruled as a nation-state. So that's uh, 1821 for Spain or something like that, and it's 
1848 for Switzerland and it is uh, 1960 for Ghana and so on. So it's not chronological time. And these are decades after the creation of nation states and that's the probability of war with confidence into one and so on. And you can see that this inverted U-shape relationship actually indeed emerges quite clearly. And also conforming to uh, the argument, um, these here, these wars here are mostly uh, secessionist uh, wars, nationalist wars of, of liberation, as you have nationalists themselves would call it. While here, in this part of the process, it's mostly um, civil wars and wars between uh, states. Okay, so that brings me to the last step in the analysis, which is um, to focus more precisely on this part here of the whole process. So on um, that uh, period when the nation state has already been established. So we're looking at independent nation states here. And we're looking at civil wars only. And we're looking at the post-1945 period only. All of this to get better data, to have more precision and so on. And what I would like to do now, or what this corresponding chapter does, is to show that it is indeed ethno-political inequality or exclusion that is a major force that drives these um, countries into civil wars. So it's kind of a, a one specific aspect of the overall uh, link between nation-state formation and war that I'm focusing upon now in this last step. And in order to actually show this, we had to create uh, new data um, that was uh, a project that I did together with uh, Cedarman from the um, ETH in Zurich and, and a lot of um, people from around the world who helped us with this new data set. And it's a data set on, that codes the ethno-political power configuration in all countries of the world since 1945. So we look at politically relevant ethnic groups. That's the first step, to make a list of such groups and then code the relative degree of representation in or access to central level uh, government. And we then look, that allows to calculate the percentage of the population that is excluded from representation at the central level of government on the basis of their ethnic background. Um, here in this part of the book, it becomes a little bit more complicated because I look at other mechanisms that are war-prone as well. I think just looking at signs of exhaustion in the faces of my public, I think I should probably skip these um, additional mechanisms here. And, um, and show you some results, um, which is again you know, presented in the same relatively easy to digest uh, form. So uh, the dependent variable that we're looking at now, that we're, what we're trying to explain, is the likelihood of a civil war um, breaking out in a, a country in this period after independence and after 1945. And here uh, you can see that the likelihood increases by 25% if you increase levels of exclusion in a country measured in percentage of the population not represented at central levels of state um, power by one standard deviation, which is from 6 to 
32%. And these are the more complex things I'm not going to talk about. I'm just going to compare this figure here to how much poverty and um, population size influence the probability of civil war. And you can see that um, decreasing GDP, making country more poor, poorer uh, by one standard deviation, actually has this effect. And increasing the population of a country um, by one standard deviation has this effect. And these are the two most stable, universally significant, always talked about, and so on, predictors of um, civil war. And so it's meaningful to compare these effects that we found for the ethnopolitical power configuration with GDP um, and population size. And you can see that the, the magnitude of these effects are actually quite comparable. So we're not just talking about something being significant in some regression model. So it's also actually substantially meaningful to focus on power configurations, ethnopolitical power configurations, as a major source of war. So I'm coming to the conclusion. I'd like to uh, wrap everything up in, and link back to this power come legitimacy <coughs> model um, that I introduced at the beginning. So um, the first national communities emerge, that's in the first step of analysis, from a particular configuration of power, strong states and strong civil societies that together allow extending relationships exchange relationships between elites and masses uh, throughout a society. And um, since these states are more powerful and more legitimate, I argued, they become the template of ideal statehood that is then adopted by political actors, political elites across the world, leading to the global diffusion of nationalism as an ideal. And these nationalists then delegitimize ethnic hierarchies of empire, leading to nationalist wars of liberation. And nationalists rise to power and therefore can establish new nation states wherever the power configuration allows them to overthrow pre-national regimes, even without much endogenous nation building. And once empires dissolve, competing Nationalizing states might fight interstate wars over mixed territories, over the fate of their co-ethnics on the other side of the border, or to protect, um, yeah. Um, and at the same time, um, um, in these newly formed nation states, armed rebellions by excluded minorities against dominant ethnic elites lead to uh, civil wars, again, um, because... Uh, ethnopolitical, such ethnopolitical inequality as those that are characterized these states violate the new, newly established principles of legitimacy of the rule of ethnic-like over ethnic-like. So you can see that with these two elements, uh, looking at the specific configuration of power between actors and looking at principles of legitimacy, at what these actors think should um, exchange relationship between them look like uh, these two um, um, elements can actually do a lot of explanatory work um, together to understand these uh, global process. So overall, the shift to nationalist principle of political legitimacy is associated with a wave of war, hence the title of the book, um, that sweeps over the world 
wherever this process unfolds, and obviously it does so at different uh, parts of the world at different times. It starts in uh, Latin America and then rolls over other parts of the world until uh, the dissolution of the Soviet empire in the late uh, 20th century. I conclude with some policy implications of this view of the sources of war and peace. I'm kind of taking a position here um, against institutional engineering, against the idea that you can tweak with the incentive structures that political systems provide in order to guarantee a peaceful uh, behavior of the major political actors. So I'm arguing here, and actually the last chapter uh, does a lot of statistical, uh, additional statistical and data work to actually show this, that there is no clear-cut direct association between political institutions, democracy, of course, most famously, but then also more precisely consociational democracy or um, particular uh, uh, electoral rules such as proportionalism or uh, presidentialism, parliamentarism. There's no direct association between these various um, institutional features that very often have been proposed by constitutional engineers as solutions uh, uh, to the problem of conflict and war um, and the actual probability of war. Uh, it looks like, and I did some preliminary analysis along these lines, that it's the power configuration, again, that determines the choice of institutions rather than, uh, I don't find much uh, evidence for the opposite conjecture that political institutions shape, actually, the power relations, the degree of inclusiveness that you find in a policy. And I show this uh, specifically for the case of uh, democratic transition, which is much less likely in ethnocratic regimes such as the one of Saddam Hussein, um, therefore producing an association between regime type and power configuration. The best prevention, according to the analysis presented so far, is therefore not institutional engineering, but trying to uh, promote inclusionary government through whatever institutional uh, means or whatever the institutional form that such more inclusionary government might actually take. I also argue against the prevention at all cost approach, uh, the idea that foreign policy should be exclusively um, dealt with the prevention of uh, civil war. I argue here, it's a little bit risky to argue that, um, uh, so probably you don't make much many friends in, in Washington if you argue that, that way, but I think it still makes sense um, substantially that inclusionary government and therefore long-lasting peace, if this analysis is correct that I presented here, sometimes can only be achieved through war um, itself. So it's very unlikely that some of the more ex exclusionary regimes such as white rule in Rhodesia, um, uh, Saddam Hussein's uh, regime, the Assad clan's uh, rule over Syria, and so on and so on, could be transformed into an ethnically more broadly based regime by you know, peaceful conviction, uh, uh, peaceful um, means by convincing them that it's better for them themselves in the long run, and so on. But of course, that's a probabilistic statement. South Africa is a transition from ethnocracy to a more broad-based regime that happened without violence, and so on. So I don't take this to be a kind of a, a call for 
um, don't take this as uh, meaning a call for war. To end on a more positive and less dark note, maybe, um, and also uh, slightly more vaguely, um, all of this means that we have to take also from a policymaking regime legitimacy serious, um, despite all difficulties in actually um, recognizing what a legitimate regime looks like, um, despite all difficulties of measuring it, uh, let alone to um, also foster and enhance it. And I'll end on this note. Thank you. Thank you. That's very interesting. Now I have to read the book. Um, it's like a lot of work and I congratulate you. The key intuition seems to be that inclusion is good. That that's how you get this effective mode of political organization. And your sense of inclusion is clearly about inclusion of ethnic groups. You don't say much about economic inclusion. So I want to ask you to think about what the relationship might be between more economically inclusionary polities versus ethnically uh, inclusionary, because modern nation states have become quite exclusionary along economic lines and remain quite healthy and vibrant. You know, in spite of predictions that it's bad for you to be exclusionary and growing inequality, even in this country, seems to go along merrily with lots of power and, you know, even legitimacy. So, how do you think about ethnic group inclusion versus economic inclusion? Yeah, that's a very good question. I think um, um, if we try to understand war and conflict in these things, then focusing on politics and on political relations of exclusion and inclusion, uh, to use that terminology, makes a lot of sense. Um, and it's precisely because ethno-political exclusion, let's say um, not having a large segment of the population uh, uh, exclude that large segment of the population from voting rights as de facto in the U.S. until the Civil Rights uh, Revolution. That is so obviously contradicts the principle of legitimacy on which nation-states are based, the idea that um, the government should be based on uh, or should rule in the name of the entirety of the people, that it cannot but produce over the long run conflict, mobilization, by political actors who decry the violation of these principles of legitimacy. Economic inequality, however, is not part of the nation-state model that much. Um, so it is not considered to be, especially in states that, are, um, that have adopted the idea of meritocracy um, as, as a principle, economic inequality doesn't seem to contradict uh, the very principles of, of legitimacy on which the, the polity is based, and therefore is much more difficult to it's much more difficult to mobilize a political constituency that decries economic inequality as a scandal, and, and the fate to become very uh, contemporary, uh, the fate of the of the ninety nine percent 
Occupy Wall Street uh, movement, I think, kind of confirms that it is just much, much, much harder to decry inequality when it's not associated with an ethnic divide, when there's no overlap between an ethnic divide and um, economic inequality. Okay. Yeah, please. A similar question uh, you didn't talk about. Yes, so in our definition of ethnicity that we adopt for operational reasons, we include ethno-religious groups under the general rubric of ethnicity as well. So we have, for example, Shia and Sunni in various countries all over the Middle East coded as um, ethnic communities. So we're not looking, however, at such things as political movements that claim to speak in the name of of large-scale religious communities, the Ummah and so on and so on, or jihadism and all of that. Um, And, uh, you know, one cannot explain everything, uh, obviously. And um, it's also actually quite interesting to note, however, that if you just quantitatively, if you look at the number of conflicts that um, that take on the form of civil war, that are fought by jihadists or by people who have adopted not so much a domestic ethnic group perspective, but the global uh, Ummah perspective remains very, very limited indeed. Um, And even where you have that, like in contemporary Mali, where the northerners um, have, or or these groups that now fight the jihadist wars, if you look at the sources and the, the political development of these conflicts in more detail, you can see that very often they are rooted in domestic ethno-political power configurations, the exclusion of the Tuareg in the case at hand from uh, central-level power in Mali for a very, very long time. So it's just that now some of these movements have adopted for political reasons of political expediency, I guess, and to, to uh, create more effective international alliances uh, and a different rhetorics. But it doesn't mean that if you look at the root causes, to use an old-fashioned term, of these conflicts, uh, all of them are really um, indeed driven by a completely different political dynamic. I don't think so. Good. Thank you. 
conclusion that perhaps that was completely coinciding with economic inequality or religion or what have you, that under those circumstances, you end up getting legalization. So it's two questions, but they're both centered in this yeah. idea of the degree to which economics comes into play for elites yeah. and the mobilization um, in the post-45 That's a very good points and a very good way of looking at it. So in the whole argument that I've presented here, there are big holes uh, that one could fill out, one could write another book about. One is, of course, the conditions on, and I'm actually working on a project, an empirical project, to fill out uh, the hole that I'm going to describe uh, right now, which is that the conditions under which ethnic exclusion actually leads to mobilization and under which mobilization then leads to conflict are, of course, not specified. It's very broad brush kind of uh, uh, analysis that I'm presenting here, which is what you can do if you, if you have this kind of uh, global perspective. And I think um, it would be reasonable to argue that ethno-political inequality coinciding with economic inequalities are maybe easier even to scandalize and it's easier to form uh, a movement that portrays the situation as unjust and so on than if you have cross-cutting cleavages when you have a class divide that separates um, co-ethnics, um, as it were. And there's some empirical evidence for that. You know, there's uh, the, the technical term that is now used to describe ethnic cleavages that coincide with economic class differences is horizontal inequalities. And there is some uh, empirical um, support, um, most of it using the same data set, um, some of it also using survey data from uh, Africa and beyond, that this is indeed the case, that horizontal inequalities or ethnic inequalities are aligned with class cleavages or more likely to produce um, conflict. But I would make this, this hasn't been done in that small literature that emerged, but I would uh, like to more precisely analyze then the um, relationship to ethno-political inequalities. And my uh, suggestion is that most of these, most of the economic inequalities are, especially in low developing countries, the consequence actually of political inequalities. Different degrees of access to state resources, different security of land rights, different degrees to which you were expropriated by dominant elites and so on, all tied to the political configuration at the center of uh, state power. Yes? Yeah. I'm very glad that you mentioned Latin America because that's the one part of the world where my argument works probably least well. Um, where you had um, stark levels of ethno-political inequality for many, many, for, for, uh, for centuries as it were, and very little political mobilization along these lines until very, very recently, basically the last 20 or 30 years. 
So there's something to be said for a closer analysis of the, of the process of mobilization, uh, counter-mobilization, repression, and action cycles, and so on, uh, that one needs to focus upon as well to understand, really, the dynamics of civil war better. Please. Which invasion? Falkland. Invasion by the British in South Africa. It doesn't explain the, uh, the uh, even staying with South Africa, it doesn't explain how South Africa, ruled by the Maori, didn't happen, didn't spin out of control in terms of civil wars or neighboring wars, etc. It doesn't explain, uh, for example, the, uh, again, the, uh, the Second Gulf War or the war that we are now in. So there are a lot of wars that have taken place. It's not explaining it. And even inside those wars, it's not explaining, for example, the Soviets were able to latch on to the Tajiks, a minority, and, and through that created a conflict which has now evolved into an ethnic conflict in, in, in Afghanistan. And there are other places like this also. It doesn't, uh, but it explains Rwanda very well. Your model has good explanation in, in some places in, in a very yeah. good way, but others I am I'm trying to, to figure out how it would how it would answer. Well, let me run through your list of examples and claim a couple of these uh, as full victories for my uh, argument. Others, you're right, I can't do much about it. I can't do much about the Second Gulf War. Uh, you know, understanding the domestic U.S. political considerations that led to war to the invasion of um, Iraq, that's very clearly beyond the reach of the argument that I'm uh, trying to make here. The Indochina uh, war was a war of national liberation against uh, French colonialism that lasted for a very long time. And there's a lot of uh, complications that uh, go beyond what my model predicts. But basically, it's one of these wars uh, that in this hump figure, if you remember, uh, belongs to the first Health of the increase in um, so you have mobilization by um, Vietnamese and by uh, Cambodian nationalists. You have counter and so on and so on, and then escalation into an anti-colonial war, which I think is quite quite uh, conforming quite well to the general uh, model here. And then um, now I forgot what 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 else is on the list. Could you quickly? Falkland War, uh, kind of a, a late surge in nationalism in a country that is 250 or 300, however you count it, years after nation-state formation. That's not very well covered by my model. Uh, I agree. But then there was another one. Uh, what? 
South Africa, is, I mean, you did have the ANC uh, waging a low-intensity guerrilla warfare for decades against the ethnocratic power structure that characterized South Africa. You say it didn't spin out of control. It was still um, an armed movement um, that... Um, you know, I'm not really making a prediction about the level of conflict, about the number of people who will die or, or uh, how many years it will take. So all of these more uh, precise and sort of aspects of, of fighting, of conflict, are, again, not what uh, my model actually aims to, to uh, get at. But it does correctly predict that South Africa should have some kind of civil war um, activity. So I think, you know, overall, um, I never actually did this, although I should have uh, probably, is to look at just, in, if, if I count the entire number of wars that are in, in our data set, it's over 400, how many of them are reasonably well um, explained by the, the model that we have here. Such a calculation would very much depend on what we do with the Second World War, obviously, and the First World War. Um, if we um, break these big conflicts like the First and Second World War up into uh, war theaters that follow a different logic and are driven by different political um, forces. Uh, you have an Ukrainian nationalist movement trying to establish itself uh, during the Second World War that has nothing to do with great power conflicts, uh, but has to do with the local um, uh, political configuration. So if you break down uh, all these wars, the big world wars accordingly, then I would say my guess would be that between 60 or 70 percent of the conflicts that you have uh, since 1816 do have, are related to the dynamic that I'm uh, trying to describe here, which is, you know, I found that uh, good enough. But that's, of course, a matter of judgment. Please. Yeah. So I didn't, we didn't include in this um, various analytical steps international factors all that much. We didn't include the possibility of, of uh, neighboring states supporting excluded ethnic groups, not supporting them, and so on and so on. We did additional research on that, where we took our, our entire data set and coded for whether each of these um, politically relevant ethnic communities has somewhere in the world a kin group that is, and, and then what's the political status of that kin group? And then we run a big machinery. It's very complex to do that. Um, and the result is basically was, uh, for my co-authors who was kind of betting on there being a kin support relationship, was very disappointing. I kind of was quite happy that we don't have to further complexify the whole story. So 
there is something resulting if you square uh, your terms and you do some interaction effects. You can always find something. But the straightforward intuition that having a kin, an ethnic kin, uh, in power uh, or also excluded in another state somewhere in the world does something on the conflict probability for the focal ethnic groups, we couldn't find any support for. Um, now, the ethnic cleansing uh, question, you know, I haven't done research on that. There is a, a political scientist at Yale, uh, Nick Sambanis, who has uh, done a lot on whether partition actually, um, so separating to, um, uh, in, in a situation like uh, Serbia to create a, a out of Kosovo, Albania, a new state, whether that in the long run prevents um, a recurrence of violence and war. And he shows, and there's a lot of debate because other people have contested it and so on, but I think uh, as I see this debate, uh, Sambanis currently has the upper hand, uh, until the next article appears maybe, um, in showing that it doesn't reduce actually violence. So it's doubtful that, that, um, that partition or, or separation is a recipe for long-term um, stability. Unfortunately, we have, we're out of time, but there's still plenty of questions, so I encourage people to come up and uh, ask them afterwards. But the, this is a wonderful uh, big book, uh, big questions, big data, and uh, it's great to see somebody uh, really take, take it on, and uh, I think the findings are really uh, quite interesting as well. So it's widely, it should be a wide array. So thanks a lot. Thank you, Mike. Thank you. Thank you.